Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, everyone. Your hosts here, Seth Abramovich with The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope, writer for Hire. I'm available. Welcome back to another episode of It Happened in Hollywood. This week, we have a action hero queen Ooh. of the 1980s, a favorite of both of ours. Yes. A scion of a previous guest. Crazy. What does that mean? Like the child of. Oh, not the car. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of fun. And uh, that's all I'll tell you this week on It Happened in Hollywood. Yeah, so I don't know why I was being so mysterious today. I'm feeling cheeky. Right, because you can read who is on the show. Well, let's announce it. Ready? One, two, three. Ray, Ray Don Chong. Chong. <laughs> the, if, the most fun name, for one thing. It's really fun to say she is the daughter of Tom uh, Tommy B. Chong. Chong. Oh, I thought we were going to draw it out. <laughs> was on the pod last year, uh, of course, of Cheech and Chong. And, uh, but she carved out her own career for herself. Uh, an impressive one uh, through the 80s with movies like Quest for Fire and mm-hmm. uh, Commando. The Color Purple. And The Color Purple. She's done 80 films. I was looking at her IMDb. And she still works. You know, the, the three or four are like pop in my head. And yeah, and she's still doing TV and stuff like that. So it's pretty amazing to catch up with her. She's had a really interesting career. And in some ways, she was a little too forthright. She's very outspoken. With her opinions, and she thinks that might have limited her employment opportunities. I think you'll find that she didn't want to stick to the topic we had chosen, which is Commando, (laughs) uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger action bonanza comedy blockbuster. Yes, and maybe this episode should be called, We Were Supposed to Talk About Commando. (laughs) So prepare to go on some fun tangents, because names are named, gossip is spilled, and uh, fun is had. So let's just get right into it. I knew that she was the daughter of Tommy Chong. Beyond that, I knew nothing about their relationship. What about you, Chip? I did not know anything about it either. So this is very interesting, her upbringing. It was. So she told us a bit about her early childhood memories, and they go quite far back. 
My dad was a singer when we were started. He's, he was in a band called Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. Oh, and just a little aside, I'm the oldest. I'm the daughter of someone he met one night. Wow. Oh. And he hit it, quit it, forgot about it. And my grandmother, my dad's mother, heard through the grapevine, because she had they had three nightclubs, and my granny, who was Irish, disabled, intense, Grandma Chong, heard that there was a child that was a Chong. And she thought, hmm, maybe it'll calm him down, because my dad was frisky, and she wanted him to toe the line, the family line. So she went, my granny, who was disabled, went to Edmonton, and I was, by this point, eight months old in an orphanage. And unbeknownst to anyone else in the family, she went up and got me and started the process of adopting me. And she adopted me out of the orphanage. Did not, to this day, my dad doesn't believe that I was in an orphanage brought me home to Tommy and Maxine, who was his then fiancé. So my dad obviously cheated on his fiancé with my mom, who he didn't really know. He just, And my grandmother, my dad's mother, said, you have to take this baby. So I was a year old, almost, when I met my dad for the first time. Wow. wow. So it's we've always had a tricky relationship. Like I thought the first moment I met him, I, I was little, I was a toddler and I had fallen down carpeted stairs, but I fell downstairs. And I remember this looking up at him and he laughed. And I remember thinking, what a dick. But <laughs> I was a, one? I was a t- <laughs> one years old. But I remember going <laughs> and he was handsome, of course. And I just remember thinking, who the fuck are you? Wow. But I remember this. And my dad freaks out because I remember I remember the first moment meeting him. Okay, we're off to a crazy start. Yeah, right away I thought, well, she'll probably remember everything good that's ever happened to her, if, if or bad, if she remembers when she's one meeting somebody. And, you know, and she, she might, did. She might go off. But she was brought into his family. He was pretty much an absent dad. He would come in and out. He sounded like a lot of fun, but, yes. you know, not exactly a role model. More of a pal and a fun kind of guy to have around than a father. And they were up in Canada, but he decided eventually to, to move the family down to the States. And they settled in Los Angeles. And then if you go back now to our podcast with him, you can learn about how he and his partner, Cheech Marin, became Cheech and Chong and became a big deal. Meanwhile, young Ray, she's growing up uh, sort of in, in the shadow of this. I guess they're struggling until she hits her early teens or 12 yeah. And dad makes it big. I was 12 when Tommy Chong became Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong. Yeah. Cheech and Chong's first record, Big Bamboo, came out when I was 12. And it was fantastic. It was yeah. a great currency. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> I went to school in Laurel Canyon and I went to school with Miyako Shorter, Wayne Shorter's daughter, and Billy D. Williams' stepdaughter. I went to school with um, Sherry Goffin and Louise Goffin, which was Carol King's kid. Who else was famous? There was like all these little famous kids and we all were together in Laurel Canyon and we're all still friends. We're all still connected. So you always hear about Laurel Canyon in the 60s, you know, uh, Joni Mitchell, David Crosby, that bunch. But Mm -hmm. uh, now this is fresh news. Right. This is Laurel Laurel Canyon Canyon in the 70s. Laurel Canyon babies. (laughs) So she sounds like she's living a pretty good life now. Her dad's become a celebrity. She's going to this nice school in Laurel Canyon, which is a very uh, bohemian sort of cool enclave in the Hollywood Hills. And it sounds like, you know, things have stabilized and she decides she wants to be an actress. She starts going on auditions and right away she starts getting parts. 
Well, I was a child actor. I did a Disney movie, and my sixth grade graduation from Wonderland, I sang a song by Gordon DeWitty called Celebrate Life, and I got this big standing ovation, and I thought I would be a singer, but I didn't have the skills. I didn't play an instrument. I didn't really have the skills to back that up. So then because of that performance, I got an audition for a Disney film, got the film, and then worked, started doing work as a teen and underage person. I mean, I'd have to hire an adult on set. But I would get the gig, so I would pay them 100 bucks a day to be my um, parent, because my parents couldn't do it. They were doing whatever they did. Interesting that she's basically on her own yeah. from the age of 12. And I just saw Honey Boy, the Shia LaBeouf thing, and it's uh, it reminded me of that. Like, uh-huh. He's like a you know 11-year-old kid on the movie sets, and but his dad does take care of him. It's just that his dad is this nightmare rodeo clown oh, <laughs> freak <goodness. laughs> who totally screws it. him up. But he, wow. he had one parent where she didn't have either parent. They were off living their lives. Right. And so on the plus side, she is learning to be self-sufficient, and she's kind of a burgeoning uh, rebel which would inform her later life. Yeah, in fact, on the set of one of the Disney movies that she was acting on, she learned about the hierarchy and how she didn't fit into it. It was The Wiz Kids of Riverton, which was called an MOW, and it starred Kim Richards. And I almost got fired from it because I punched the lead actor who had butted in line. And we were 12. I was 12. And the kid butted in line during the food thing. And I thought that was so rude. And I socked him in the cheek. And because I socked him in the cheek, which essentially is the face, they pulled me into the bad Mickey Mouse cabin to tell me, you know, you can't do that. Of course, we had already been filming. I didn't realize it was a serious offense. I was like, but he butted. And they said, but he's the star. And I didn't even know about the the hierarchy. And then they didn't fire me. But they asked if they should call my dad. And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if that movie is on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, look it up. If you see a, a young star with a bruised cheek, you know that was Ray Don's doing. So she's getting roles, and uh, she said that her name helped her a little bit, but once she got in the door, she still had to deliver. And so uh, she's very affable, obviously, as a young child and smart beyond her years. So she's getting cast. Yeah, and she got one big break, which was a role on a Norman Lear series. She thought it was going to totally take her to the next level. But, and this is a theme in her life, she found that she was disappointed because she was never quite right. She didn't fit into the right slots for Hollywood and it ended up hurting her. I did a thing for Disney No, and then I got hired by Norman Lear's company to do an episode of Good Times. By then I'm like 15, 16, and they hired me to play this young girl that was the love interest of the youngest kid. And then they decided I wasn't ghetto enough, so they hired Janet Jackson. I got fired by Norman Lear because I wasn't black enough, and it was so harsh because I just really wanted the role. What is that conversation? How they explain that? They just say you're fired. They've they've replaced you because they didn't feel like you were ghetto enough. I wasn't neighborhood enough. I come from Canada. We enunciate. What can I say? And at that point, I didn't really have the chops to imagine coming up, you know, where you say axe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there it is. Wow. It was intense. Whoa. I actually. And, and so they say that in so many words. They don't they even just... tell you that. They, but you know that's what it is because then they hire somebody who, who says axe. <laughs> It's an interesting place you're at because you, so what you are a woman of color, but here you're not a woman of color enough. I'm Well, I'm a woman of color and I'm mixed, so I sort of straddle that. And there's so much intraracial racism within the community. And then there's cultural racism. There's cultural resistance. So it's like I'm like triple, quadruple. 
minority than, say, you guys would be. Because, well, you're only half minority because mm-hmm. you're white men. So Sorry. you don't get to fully call that card. <laughs> I have like a couple knocks, mm-hmm. like six or seven. You've earned it. I know, right? I, I Obviously, I really wanted to have an interesting life. I wanted the gypsy curse. That was my, <laughs> may you live an interesting life. But you're also very ahead of your time, because now I would yeah. feel like you would be, the, yeah. that you are what people want. Well, what happened, though, this is what happened. I would have to hustle. Like, I would go through all the scripts that my agents would get, and I would look for the nondescript character that was not necessarily male or female, that was not really culturally specific. It's called blacking. I'd look for the anti-blacking role, that it was just a person, and they were interesting. So I would say to my agents, send me in on that. I would get them to get me in on an audition, and a lot of times I'd get it because I'd be so charming, such a hustler, and I'd go get it. And they'd say, she was so fun. Yes, let's give it to her. I love that. So, you know, she knew what the limitations of the industry were imposing on her, and she found a way to succeed within those limitations. Right. She made her own path. But now she's getting a little bit older. She's in her teens. And um, now we're getting into... Probably the most sensational portion of today's podcast. Right. Ray Dawn's friendship, more than friendship, with a certain rock star. I think this is a bit of an explosive topic, so I think we should enter into it not lightly. Well, she was just so candid about everything and also candid about her reasons for why she does everything. So I don't think it's Yeah, and it was her choice to talk about it. We're not trying to gotcha on anybody. So why don't we just get into it? When I was a young underage uh, jailbait, I was hanging out with Mick Jagger. And so I knew the Stones. I never saw the Stones. I was I was not necessarily a fan of the Stones, but I hung out with, with Mick a few times and super underage, but whatever. And then when I was doing a movie called Beat Street in New York, I ran into him and Keith at a, a bar and they had just finished working on a video. And I was like, put me in a video. I felt like I had earned it by that point. And I get a phone call three weeks later from Jagger's office saying, will you go down to Brazil with Mick? They're doing his solo record and it's going to be kind of like a long form video called Running Out of Luck and Julian Temple's directing it. And would you be the girl? And I was like, yes, because I look like a karaoke. And it was perfect. So they made me. And by then I was working and I was coming on. I had done Choose Me. I'd done Quest for Fire. So I wasn't not known. And I think they thought it would be helpful. And it was. And it was right at the peak of of MTV. So it was a timing thing. MTV was coming on and then they put Mick Jagger's thing and I was all over MTV right as Commando was happening. Yeah, and Commando was, was interesting. Uh, just another night. Was that, right. That I have one question about Mick before we go into Commando. Were you guys sleeping together? Not then. I was over it. But by then, no, not when we did that movie. We were just friends by then. But as a child, <laughs> um, you know. I always thought it was interesting Wait, at that time. I knew him in that way as a teenager, but not as, a, as an adult. I was like over it. Oh, so back then as a teenager you were? Well, we were friends, put it that way, with benefits. Okay. I didn't want to be with him, and I, th- I thought he was old. But I thought he was interesting because he was Mick Jagger. And so, you know, you're young, you're just newly sexual, even though you are underage. And it was like, yeah, it was easy deasy. Got it. So, so Should I be more horrified? He didn't traumatize me. I didn't want anything about it. I didn't want his baby. I didn't. Ew. I mean, my thing was like, ew. <laughs> well, like, how old were you? Young. 
Like 15? Mm. Yes. <laughs> okay. It was young. It was a different time in a way, though. Too. No, but I, culturally, mean, I will tell you, right I here. will tell you that it didn't traumatize me. It wasn't a me too moment. It was something I empoweredly choose. You know, I mean, I could have said no. I wasn't forced. He didn't, you know, it wasn't. I thought he was adorable. And I was just new at the whole thing. And he was just like, grab me and said, you're it. And I was like, I wanted to be it. Okay, so there's the bombshell or her version of what happened with Mick Jagger. Just to put it in the context of our narrative today, it didn't just come out of nowhere. You know, she was explaining how she went from child star to the star of Commando, and basically uh, in her 20s, she made this long-form video with the Stones, and that got her on MTV and made her very popular, and that's sort of what led to Commando. So that's how we got into that. Right, but she had met Mick Jagger earlier. She met him as a 15-year-old which she nodded her head and acknowledged that that was the age when they started in their relationship. Let's just say that we don't condone anything that would be a sexual relationship with a minor, but this was her telling her story and we weren't certainly going to shout her down at that moment and we were going to let her tell her version. And she had more thoughts on why she feels that this was not a rape situation, statutory rape situation. And here's Radon Chong explaining more about her relationship with Mick Jagger. I grew up free range in Hollywood. Tommy Chong is my father. Hello, it could have been worse. I was never Heidi Fleist. I always was in charge of myself. And I have to say, I was never... The worst experiences we ever had as young girls was not with, you know, creepy guys that we might have experimented with, but we never wanted anything from them. It was just like, oh, that's so-and-so. That might be interesting for a second. But it was never as like as young girls growing up. It was like it was just it was the seventies. It was just fun. Right. And, and, and he didn't what slip the you. Were a, about a he didn't. You. No, I never was taken advantage of. No, it was never like that. It was just like, oh, this is fun. Let's go to this recording studio, hang out all night, and then you know, it was just fun. And mm-hmm. then when it was over, it was over. Like in my story, it was never traumatizing. It was like, okay, bye. And then, you know, a couple times I'd see him here and there, whatever, growing up. And then I was 24 making a movie in New York City and I ran into them. So I could go up and say, put me in a movie, you guys. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jesus, by this time, I felt like I earned it. And I did get the call and he did take a uh, chance on me. And then I did get to star in that thing. And it did help me get Commando, which turned into another thing. And the fascinating thing about Mick Jagger is that I, he licks me in the movie and I didn't like that. And I mentioned it in a, an article and he has never spoken to me since because I said I didn't like that. So isn't that funny? So now he's really not going to talk to me because I busted him for underage. Oh, my gosh. I think I might have seen like a gif of that licking uh, thing. It's gross. It's Can I gross tell you something? <laughs> I was in Johnny Pagosi. You know who Johnny Pagosi is? No. Well, he's amazing. And I love him. And Johnny Pagosi is a good friend with, of Mick Jagger's but. That's a separate aside. Johnny Pagosi has a the first selfie book, and it's called Pagosi and Friends. And I think I'm with my best friend at the time, was Mackenzie Phillips. I have a little afro and puka shells on, and it's Mackenzie Phillips and Friend. Isn't that funny? Wow. And I'm in a book. And it was a party Friend. for Arnold Schwarzenegger's muscle work. It was called Stay Hungry. And Bob Rafelson had directed it. And the party was at Jack Nicholson's house. And I was an underage thing at that party with my friend Mackenzie. Were you aware of what was going on with her and her father? 
first of all, I don't believe that was true. Really and I was there and witnessed, I witnessed a lot of the, the crazy, but I don't myself do any of that because my dad, one thing good about having a father who's a drug expert is that as a young age, my dad was like, Coke will give you a heart attack and we don't do it because it makes you uninteresting. Heroin's <laughs> off the table because it's not pretty. My dad was really clear as kids what we should do. And he's pot's good. Psychedelics are fantastic. So hanging out with my friend and her father and those guys were so into this other stuff. I never partook of it, but I was there and I saw a lot of it. And I'm going to tell you something in my heart of hearts. I believe she wanted to sell books. Oh, wow. And I believe that she made it up because if you know anything about drugs, a junkie only cares about drugs and scoring. Rarely are they that and sexual. It just doesn't, if you knew him and I was around him when he was like pretty peaky bad, he was about money and, and scoring, money and scoring, not the other thing. So I don't know where she came, why she would make that up. And then I realize she wants to sell books. And if you talk to Michelle Phillips, she feels the same way. I don't think John would do that. I don't think he even cared about it. I don't even think his penis worked. Whoa. <laughs> that's just wow. my, that's my take on it. Like she even made up a story in the book that I did heroin with her at uh, Tavern on the Green and I didn't. I never did heroin with her. I did heroin in Paris, like years later, four years later, and I snorted it with a bunch of Turks. I know. Oh and it was God. the only time that I consciously did it. I did it once after that, but it was in a joint and I, you know, it was horrible. I hate that drug. It wasn't my favorite. Did she write about that in her book? She wrote that I did heroin with her at the Tavern on the Green and I didn't. I hung out with her. I had that. I was there at a dinner when she passed out, but I wasn't doing any of her heavy drugs. Mm. I was too busy hanging out with Mick Jagger. Right. That's how I met him, was through Mackenzie and John. I think I said, oh, wow, maybe 55 times <laughs> during that last stretch. Well, she's just so truthful and drops a lot of bombshells. Yeah. So. I, you know, I think as podcast interviewers, uh, we always want our guests to uh, have some colorful anecdotes from their Hollywood past. But even us, experienced us, were shocked by the number of crazy bombshell stories that were flying out of Ray Don Chong yeah. <laughs> about her Hollywood past. So just so but, you catch she up. she clearly has no qualms about saying them. Right. So just to get you caught up with what she's talking about, if you got lost in the last stretch, Mackenzie Phillips was the daughter of John Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas and Michelle Phillips. Mackenzie Phillips, of course, went on to stardom on her own as this star of One Day at a Time. She had a lot of struggles with drug abuse. And sometime in the 2010s, I want to say, she released uh, her own memoir. She went on Oprah. And the big bombshell in that one is that her father had sex with her. It was pretty shocking. And it's equally shocking that Ray, who knew her quite well at the time, is now saying that she made that up to sell books. So a lot of controversial things coming from Ray. But uh, she's definitely keeping it interesting. Now let's... Maybe move on. So she's, uh, she's kind of unaccompanied minor, uh, making her way through Hollywood, having a good time. It's the 70s. The kids, uh, they grew up fast in Hollywood. It was a different... <laughs> I mean, look, you think, well, you think like Drew Barrymore and... I mean, that's later than the 70s even. That's the 80s, yeah, but yeah. Still, you know what I'm saying. Totally. This was the excess uh, heights of Hollywood, and she's having a good time. And here she is telling us a bit about the party scene. 
You would go to parties and see every drug out on tables. And people were in lingerie. I mean, I remember going to a party and there was a body size of marijuana on a, you know, just a huge chunk of that. And then there'd be, you know, platters being tossed around of Coke. And, you know, you parties were different. And then jars of Quaaludes. So it was really fun, to be honest. (laughs) Who threw the best parties? You know, uh, who's the blues man? John Mayle. I went to a really fun party at John Mayle's house. He an- answered the door in full block and tackle um, lingerie. <laughs> and it was so cool. And he's straight, but he liked to dress in the ladies' stuff. And that was a pretty fantastic party. There was no one person that we hung out with, but there were some fantastic, crazy-ass parties for sure. Did you ever go to the Alan Carr parties? No, I missed that because that was um, that was disco. I was roller skating. Cher. Cher had the best parties. Cher and Helena. The roller skating party was the best party. Where was that at? That was in uh, Reseda, on Reseda Boulevard, at a roller rink. And it was everybody in town, everybody who was famous. And you should ask me who the best skaters are. Who? Ed Bagley Jr. <laughs> he is the greatest roller skater and share. And That's tell me, awesome. who, ask me who the worst one was. Who? Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> oh, well. Robert De Niro wasn't very good, nor was Al Pacino. They're a little, like, edgy on the edge. It really kind of took their role. It kind of threw your swagger off. That's why I love skating, because, you know, the skating party sort of showed who could do it. Well, Cher was in that Hell on Wheels video where she's, she's skating. The best. She's, she's the best. She's just so athletic yeah. and fabulous. Roller skating. What's breaking? <laughs> I don't know. Al Roller Pacino's skate. hip. Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, they left that part out of The Irishman, where he broke his hip roller skating. <laughs> and that scene was the highlight of The Irishman. <laughs> okay, you've been through hell and back. Thank you for your patience. We can now finally get to Commando. <laughs> it took a Who are the commando doing. heads out there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Commando, the topic at hand. Here we go. Commando. Let's mm-hmm. get there, because that's the main course today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Why is Commando the main course? Because it's, do you think it's my best movie? Well, See, I no, think Quest, no. I think Quest for Fire is my best Quest movie. Quest for Fire is amazing. But nobody knows I'm in it. <laughs> we could have done Quest for Fire. But I mean, just saying in terms of like a movie that holds up, I mean, Commando's good. And feel, I, but if you think about, Commando's let's just break down my 80s. performance. Mm-hmm. But also too, I don't do much except squeal and then have a sides. Yeah, but you're good at them. I'm very good at them. Thank you. And it's a big part. You're not, you don't just show up in one scene. You're, you're really this, the, this, the number two star of that film. Yes. And the film, as we were discussing recently, we feel it's sort of unsung as having sort of changed the direction of a certain genre of cinema and Mm -hmm. adding comedy to the action. And and also diversity. Because if you notice, a lot more girls weren't the the standard. They were, I became a standard that they started to follow. There you go. Yeah, just to add a little more interest. And I'm happy to say, having just rewatched it, it holds up. It's, it kind of holds up. It's, it's a little fun. bit racist. I mean, come on. 30,000 brown people get shot by well, him. And yeah. He gets not even a bruise. <laughs> I know. I mean, you're kind of going so accepting that that will be the... Uh... It's really racist. <laughs> but you know what was really good that I liked? <laughs> I liked the fact that we didn't become lovers. Like it was in the original script and it was just, just so unsavory because mm-hmm. we had a clock ticking. You really can't. You don't think about sex when there's a clock ticking and your daughter's in jeopardy. Come on. Yeah. Right. And, and you, it never completely sets up whether you guys have a romantic yeah, chemistry or not. 
No. It's almost like you're more like siblings than uh, which letters. is much more. It's much more interesting to watch instead mm-hmm. of the the because it gets boggy. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I'm against all that, but it's just like I don't know. <laughs> All right, so let's go through it. So, um, must we? Ha- yes. <laughs> let's just talk about. Let's like, just talk. You're willing talk, to talk about anything, but uh, underage sex. No, well, I'm like kidding. commandos. I'll talk about the line. underage sex with Mick Jagger, but <laughs> not. Um, well, let's put it this way. I was I'm just this- kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, so we got her to talk about Commando. Well, she talked a little bit about <laughs> Tom Cruise before Commando. <laughs> Uh, that'll be for the bonus episode. The Criterion cut. <laughs> Obviously, we wanted to know about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. And after, you know, nearly fainting from the Mick Jagger story, I was ready for the worst with Arnold. But actually, her memories of Arnold are kind of innocent and sweet. I met Arnold when I was nine because my dad is a bodybuilder. And as children, he would go to Muscle Beach and we would play on the rings. So my whole childhood was about seeing those giant creatures. Because back in the day, it was Dave Draper and Franco Zane and all the big, big stars of Mr. Universe at Muscle Beach. So Tommy Chong was a groupie to the Muscle Heads, and we were just the kidlets. We were the little kids that were playing around. So I knew Arnold as a little guy, and he, you know, he would say, hey, you know, whatever to dad, and they all hung out with Tommy, and then the more famous he got, the more they hung out with him. But I was no, a no thing. So by the time I walked into the meeting, I knew to wear a short skirt, because it was him, and I knew that the script sucked. This one part was so bad. It was a really awkward part in the script that I knew every actress was choking on, no pun intended. So I fixed that in my brain and I walked in and I first thing I said was I loved him up and I explained who I was and how I had seen him. So he's already melted because I grew up on Muscle Beach. I knew all his big friends and he's like, oh, you know, he, that's incredible. And then I read the thing and I did what I planned to do on this one really stupid part and I left him holding the bag and it made him laugh and they just died. So there was a part in the script where there was a dildo and the stewardess in the script, the way they wrote it originally is they had it that Arnold finds it and pulls it out and she goes, Oh, it gets lonely on the job. And I was like, no fucking way. Am I going to own that? So when he pulled it out, I went, whose is that? That's not mine. And he's like, and so Arnold, because he wasn't that nimble then, it was like, uh, uh. like he had a cigar and a dildo in his eye. And it was a make believe one. And so it killed the room, right? Wasn't that a good way to do yeah. Like, whose is that? And he's like, I don't know. It's his. So, needless to say, that slayed the room. And then he was left holding the. And they uh, and I walked out and I knew I got the part. I went straight to my agent's office and watched the phone ring. Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, you look at a script, you can break it down and see what works and what doesn't work. And this town is so, if you ask me, can be so handcuffed to all the political stuff that they won't know that they can get rid of that or they don't, won't want to. None of that ended up in the movie. No, of course it wouldn't. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> so you got the call. And then I went down and did it, and it was awesome. What did they offer? Like, how much did you get paid? I don't remember that. I don't think it was a lot. I mean, in the day that I was working, in my peak time, I always was like, well, we could have gone another way. So I always got dinged. I never got what I was worth. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't have the managers, because I didn't really believe in managers back then. So I didn't have the scary people behind me. And so I just worked for probably barest minimum. Mm-hmm. I was always breaking ceilings to get the role, and they would say to my people, well, we're taking a risk because mm-hmm. we don't know if this is going to work. So I've mm. paid to be Ray Don Chong. It sucks. 
I think that's a fascinating insight into her uh, personality and her character, you know, because imagine what that must do to you when Hollywood is like, well, we're taking a chance here. You know, it just feels like because of who you are as a person genetically, that nothing that you have anything to do with, what you're born as, that they would go, well, it's a big risk, so we could probably pay you less and uh, we're helping you out. You know, I mean, it's got to do something to your psyche. So then, you know, if you're an actor, you're probably faced with a couple of options there. You either keep pressing on or you just go, well, screw this. I'm getting out of the business. And she just kept pressing on. So you got to admire that about her tenacity and her personality. Yeah. Amazing tenacity and also very clever. You know, that thing with the dildo, like that endeared her to everyone in the room. It was a chance. She took a chance. She changed what was on the page. But she made the star laugh and, you know, she got this part. So she's a, a really interesting example of the canniness that it takes to succeed in Hollywood, even when things are stacked against you. So now that we're well into the commando section of today's podcast, uh, maybe we should give a little bit of a rundown as to what this movie is about. Arnold is a guy who's retired and then the army comes to find him to stop some other bad guys, right? That's yeah. the basic plot. So along the way, he kills a lot of people yeah. to get to the big bad guy. Mm-hmm. And then he kills the big bad guy. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. And Ray is a um, airline uh, attendant. Um, flight right, attendant, a flight attendant. Who he hits on in an airport and he hijacks her car and then they become a duo. Who the hell are you? Before we got to the rocket launcher part, though, we wanted to know a little bit more about working with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, like, what's that like? So she told us. So what's he like? What does, what, we want to know about stories about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, this is the thing about him is that um, he was pretty handy. Bullshit! Everybody asked, you know, I was in a small car with him for six weeks. He was handy, but he was never, like, scarily so. And I say handy because he was, like, funny and, you know, flirty. But I never, he wasn't my type. He was too old for me. He was also getting ready to be married to a Kennedy. And, you know, I'm respectful of that. And I never had, like, any ambitions. And he didn't have any ambitions. We were kind of sparring intellectually. We because obviously I'm a liberal, he's obviously not. And we would have these, I wish we had the the, the uh, recording of the in-between the takes because we spent so many hours together that we would talk about politics and talk about the state of things. And I'm impressed with him because he has like two business degrees and, you know, I'm very illiterate when it came to finances, certainly then. And I was just like, wow, why would you do that? And he was like, I come from, you know, a broken family and Austria. And I was just impressed with his whole origin story. And I will say one thing about him that I loved particularly is he's very sunny, if that makes any sense. He just mm-hmm. glows. He's got the charisma of a star, and um, he's beautiful. He is inside and out one of the most beautiful human beings you could ever be around. Mm. So for me, it was really dreamy. I'm not going to shoot you between the eyes. I'm going to shoot you between the balls. Let off some steam, Bennett. I felt like he trusted me comedically and let me do my thing. Like he always protected me from Joel Silver and he always took my side, I felt. 
And then he was really sweet with my son, who was at the time three. Arnold is really fun. And I was always on his side, if that makes any sense. Like, Because when you work with guy guys, because he's such a macho dude, you know, they'll say maybe inappropriate things like, look at her legs. And he would always tease me about my fat bits. Like he'd, you know, grab my, because there's certain places on a body where we people carry fat. And he knew them because he's, that's his expertise. And I'd be like, fuck off, you know, like, don't touch my bits, you know. But he would never, it, to me, it never was like inappropriate because I felt like it, I was one of the guys, you know. And I'd ask him any question, he would answer anything. And I love that about him. I don't see him now, you know. I think he avoids me. I think he's afraid of me. <laughs> Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's what made you. You did. I lied. But I do love him, and I really felt working with him was dreamy. And you can tell sometimes on films, when the casting is perfect, it's not work. Mm-hmm. It's just pure play. So there you go. <laughs> um, former governor, of California, slightly handsy. <laughs> mm. Uh, you know she's very uh, clear minded about all his the aspects of his personality and she was willing to tell us about that which is very rare because most people in the interviews they're kind of guarded and uh, they're going to tell you a certain facet of people and not tell other facets to give him credit for having his uh, degrees in business and for being beautiful inside and out and also being a little handsy and pointing out her fat bits Right, and she's not just sitting there going like, hey, Mr. Schwarzenegger. I mean, she's standing up for herself, but it's also during a time when if you're young and you don't, you know, you want to get work and you want to keep working, so you have to toe the line a little bit, but you also mm-hmm. have to assert yourself and your personality as well. So I really do want to say that I think her performance in this movie is amazing, that she holds her own with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's not a romance and it's never weird. It's just they're a great screen duo. And she, right. she is really great in this film. Yes, and she's the, also the comic relief, which has not happened a lot in these movies. In the 80s, usually the woman is either just a love interest or a bimbo or doesn't have a whole lot to do except support the hero. And she like calls out the hero on things. and Definitely, and she ad-libbed lines about his... Uh being a chauvinist and things like that. And um, it was very ahead of its time. So great performance. And uh, one of my favorite sequences in the whole film is this classic scene, bait and switch moment. And I think it's one of the most iconic moments from 80s action movies. And here she is talking about it. The rocket launcher, it was written that she just gets it and works it. And I was like, let's do it backwards. Because how would I know how to use a a rocket launcher? Nobody knows how to do that. There's things like that that you want to stay true to. I mean, that's pure comedy, set up and deny. Did you fire it? Yeah, it was it was completely, you know, rocket launchers are hollow, right? Even uh-huh. the new ones, even the, the ones we have today. Uh-huh. Because basically what they do is they set up a frame that directs a projectile. Mm-hmm. And then the, the trigger is just to set off the projectile. But a launcher is just to direct it, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're hollow and very light. And they just put some, like, fake stuff in it that would go, and you know, it wasn't a real ordinance. So when it fired backwards and it, something exploded, did, it was, was that... just dust and like like the stuff that makes smoke, okay. and then I sell it. But th- <laughs> was there an explosion behind you? Just from the um, squid, the giant squid, oh. like in the thing, there is a, a you know, it's like a pile of smoke stuff, whatever makes it, and then I sell it. And then they add the, the explosion yeah, later. Yeah, that's oh, how we did it. I really it's looked at it. It was so magic. And then I sell it with the jerk back and fall. You see, that's the thing. It's movie magic. We sell it. You totally sold it. Mm-hmm. I think that moment is iconic. Yeah. 
Yeah, it might be definitely. my favorite shot in the whole movie. It's funny because you don't I mean, expect it, yeah. and then boom. Because you know, You're when people are really thing. good with guns and stuff, I think that's so unrealistic. What do you think she's doing? I think she's got something for us. <laughs> I bet she does. <laughs> So, Commando comes out in 1985, Mm -hmm. October 4th, to be precise, and it's a pretty big hit. Right. It's not like Total Recall big, but it's the seventh biggest R-rated release of that year, making about $70 million or $60 million on a $10 million budget. Now that's a big return, because that's what they used to judge movies by before all the adding in the advertising costs and all that stuff. So like in 1981, for example, the biggest grossing movie was Stripes. It didn't make the most money, but it made the most money off of its off budget. budget. That was like a big deal back then in the 80s. So she becomes a big international star. Mm-hmm. I know that's how I first took notice of her, and she made a big impression on me. And uh, we wanted to know what stardom was like for Radon Chong. And, well... Uh... You always get a little more than you <laughs> ask for with Ray, which is amazing. And usually you get a man's name. Did it make you a movie star? It did. I'll say something that probably a lot of people don't know. It would have made me a bigger movie star if Joel Silver hadn't had told the studio that I was a bad person. And why that happened, I mean, allegedly. But I did a uh, press junket, and I think I just went crazy with room service, and my bill was pretty high. And he got <laughs> so mad. And then I know that the studio wanted to hire me for a couple gigs, and then they, you know what they always do is they don't come to, they ask the producers, how was she? And I just noticed I never worked for Fox again for, like, decades. And I know that Joel probably said something toxic. And I don't know exactly what was said, but I know it was enough that I never, after Commando, worked for the studio. Think about it. So I know that that's a, an unknown thing. And I think it was because he was mad because it was a pretty big bill. And he should have been happy to pay. What did you order? Uh, I don't know. Champagne and caviar. It was probably something. Could I don't have know, been that much. Yeah. It was a lot. <laughs> but still, he should if, if I had been Kevin Costner before Kevin Costner was Kevin Costner, he, they would have just sucked it up. But I was a woman of color. Right. You see what I'm saying? It's so unfair. Right. There you go. Ran up a big bill on the old uh, room service. She thinks that affected her working prospects after that. Maybe she's right. She says she never works for Fox again, and uh, that could be a variety of reasons. Got to take her at her word with what she's saying. I love how she always speaks truth to power and tells us exactly what's on her mind. And in a way, she got the last laugh because Joel Silver, the producer, kind of ran his company into the ground and is now out of business. So there you go. Ray's still here. Ordering up room service. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, after uh, Commando, of course, she was cast in The Color Purple. So, you know, she came out of Commando pretty good. So she got this great opportunity to be in this prestige Steven Spielberg adaptation of The Color Purple. And she doesn't have great memories of that movie. (laughs) Okay, so the reason why I'm like, ugh, the movie, because for me, I was at a peak point in my career when I did The Color Purple. I had to audition a zillion times this particular scene. I was a little annoyed that it took so long for them to make a decision for me to play Squeak. And then as we were getting to do the movie, all of a sudden, and I love Quincy, don't get me wrong, but Quincy Jones gets this musical number and my big scene gets cut. 
So that's like a really hard thing to endure. You work your butt off. You, if you've read the book, Squeak is a really pivotal point in Sophia Oprah's freedom. And she's this extraordinary character. But then you get to the movie and there's like, you know, everyone's wearing velvet. There's a musical number. It was, was that the one that's like, sister? No, no, no. It was, the, oh, yeah, it was like Margaret the parade. Avery, the it was the parade the coming end. into the theater. The, the thing pastor. is, and it's a really good piece, but it cost me a scene, a pivotal emotional moment. So what was Squeak supposed to do to help Oprah get out of so jail? So she gets raped to get her out of jail. She lets the, the jailer rape her in the book. She right. goes and petitions her freedom. And the jailer's like, what are you going to do for me? And then the next scene, you see her coming... Sophia's freed and Squeak is limping up the driveway, hmm. bruised and battered because she gave herself to get Sophia out of jail. And that's a huge, to me, that was such a huge, wonderful sacrifice to get this person out of jail. And in the South, that happened a lot, obviously, but that got cut out because it was too heavy, I guess. I wonder, did Alice Walker have that in her draft it's in the of book. the script? It's in the book. But, but when she wrote the it was you know, in the script. She wrote a script. Yeah, and, and I wow. love Alice Walker. But you know, you've got Steven Spielberg doing your movie. You'll do whatever right. Steven wants. Steven was huge to work for. Everybody was like, Steven, Steven. And he's not exactly the guy you go to. He's not for the a deepest scene human like being on the planet. Yeah, so. But he did that. I mean, you know, he's not you know Milos Forman in terms of emotional depth. He's not the unbearable lightness of being. He's Velvet and chicken coop. <laughs> there were a lot of cuts to the cute kids and chicken coops. I mean, so I suffer with this movie because, uh -huh. you know, as someone who read the book like six times and I really got like, you know, just in. And if you know the history, it wasn't velvet. It was rugged. We were poor. And, you know, I can't wait to see the Harriet Tubman film. It looks really good. I'm just waiting. And I love the Equal Justice Initiative. I love the fact that we have this museum in Alabama, that we, we have a lynching museum, because this is stuff that needs to be told that Americans don't want to know about. White guys don't want to talk about the fact that we are, a re, you know, we were done to in a continuum that happens and still exists today. We are being butchered and massacred as people of color. And so The Color Purple is a Hollywood-ized version of a time that just wasn't cute and, and adorable. But I, I think that film's very cute and adorable. But, you know, it made Whoopi, who was coming on, or who was a big star anyway, but, and I love Whoopi. And then it made Oprah, who was a juggernaut, is a juggernaut, you know, so I get it. So for me, it was painful, though. She calls it like she sees it. Yeah, but I remember when the movie came out, it, it wasn't the best-reviewed movie, and it didn't win any major Oscars. Right. And Spielberg wasn't nominated for Best Director, even. I yeah, there was some was big like a, slight at the time. Yeah, he won the GGA Award, I believe, and was not even nominated for Best Director. I think now, in retrospect, it's sort of beloved. It's become a favorite film of a lot of people, and it did launch Whoopi and Oprah and... You know, so so it is considered now, I think, in retrospect, a classic. But at the time, I remember it was that snub by the Academy that people felt. Yeah, well, you can definitely uh, feel Ray Dawn's uh, grievances with it because, yeah, it is a little bit of uh, Disney-fied in its uh, presentation. And they cut her big scene. Yes. This is one of our wilder rides as an interview, I'd have to say. Yeah. 
Every episode the, <laughs> has been different, but this one was way out of orbit. Right, because on this show, usually we do focus on one thing from the past, and it was going to be Commando, but it just ended up <laughs> being so much more than that. But also, we you know we don't have people that are quite as candid, I guess, and um, who's had such a long career, and she's still at it, which is impressive to me. She hasn't given up. She's still a working actress, and she wants to be cast in things. Right, and an interesting thing is, if you listen to our interview with Tommy Chong, it's very similar. So for someone <laughs> not to be raised by her father, she's very similar in conversation to yeah. her father, that she is, she's candid about things. Strong genetic line there. Yeah, Tommy Chong is super open about everything, just his mistakes, his what his opinion is, and, and Ray Don Chong is no different. Yeah, just these free associative, amazing anecdotes. Names are named, no regrets, unapologetic. I really like both of them. Yeah, so we've got to thank her for coming on the show and being so candid about everything and open. Yeah, from the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank Ray for coming in. We loved meeting you, and now we're Instagram friends. So, so we, crazy. We comment on each other's photos all the time. Hi, Ray. <laughs> thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you weren't too uh, scandalized. We hope you come back next week. And until then... We'll see you in Hollywood. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.